Welcome to the Human Odyssey podcast, and what you just heard was an excerpt from the song In My Memory by Dutch artist, DJ, composer, and producer Tiesto. My name is Jamie, and today I'm joined by my co-host Skander, as well as Dr. Isabel Smolagonga, Associate Professor in Population Biology for the Institute for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Dynamics at the University of Amsterdam. So, Isabel, how are you doing today? Hi, um, yes, I'm, uh, today I'm doing quite well, actually. Um, the last period has been quite challenging, but um, yeah. <laughs> things have settled down a bit, and uh, yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. <laughs> Are you in Amsterdam right now? Um, I'm working from home, like most people that work at the University of Amsterdam, we all have to work from home, so uh, students can actually occasionally go into the building for teaching. And uh, I live in Hilo, which is just north of Amsterdam. Right. And uh, at the university, you're an associate professor, is that right? Yes, Associate Professor of uh, Population Biology. Mm-hmm. At the yeah. Institute for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Dynamics. Dynamics, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, at the IBS, yes. <laughs> yeah, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thanks for joining us. And um, I guess we can kind of get into the your work history um, at not just the University of uh, Amsterdam, but you've also you've started with a, a bachelor's and master's in population biology. Yes, yeah, and uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me, by the way. That's <laughs> fun. Yeah, yeah, I started off at the uh, Wageningen University, it feels like ages ago, but yeah, um, mm. specializing in uh, population biology. Yeah. And then you went on to get a PhD in uh, interference competition and patch choice and foraging shore crabs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Can you, can you kind of simplify it for, for us yes. who, <laughs> who aren't yeah, so sure. scientifically minded? <laughs> Yeah, so my PC was all about the question, um, if, so you're hungry, you want food, uh, you're not the only one who wants food, there are competitors around, so you have to make certain decisions, and the decisions depend on how much food is available and where, and how many competitors are around. So the big question is, what's the optimal strategy? Do you go where everybody else is, but then you don't get any food? Or do you go perhaps to a place where there is less food, but fewer competitors? And that's basically what, uh, so the interference competition, that's the competition bit. Um, and that's what I studied in the shore crabs, yeah, in the lab. So is that behavior like specifically an evolutionary um, trait? Because it's interesting to think, um, <clears throat> you know, how, I don't know, deliberate these decisions are uh, made made by the organisms, uh, whether, yeah. whether it just comes down to instincts. Um, is that yeah, too yeah. many crabs move on? I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. So it's it's basically the question that you're asking is a very general general one for the whole field of behavioral ecology. You know, is the behavior of animals, is that optimal? Does that maximize their fitness? Because that's basically what we're assuming, that natural selection has acted such right. on the behavior that they show optimal behavior so that the cues they get from the environment will result in a decision that will get them, in this case, the highest food intake rates. So those are all assumptions that you make or because yeah, some of them are very difficult to test. So is it like the question is how efficient is the evolutionary yes. process? Yes, that's a very good question. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess everyone does assume it is like super fit, you know, like yes. every every yeah. creature is suited to its but would, would do you think that's an accurate statement? Every creature is suited to its environment. Um yeah, that's a, that's a difficult I mean it, 
the animals are plastic as well in, the, in their behavior, in their physiology, in their, uh, their survival and growth. So if there's changes in the environment, they can adjust you know, in response to these changes. And the whole machinery of making these adjustments is also under natural selection. So there's also an idea that it has evolved to be optimal under the present conditions or the fairly recent conditions and within a certain range of environmental conditions. But yeah, if, if these conditions, if, if they end up in an environment that's outside of this range, then yeah, individuals can get into problems. Yeah. And, and um, this kind of leads us, I guess, into the research that you've done on life history speeds, yeah. which is a, is a pretty interesting term. Uh, what do you mean by, <laughs> yeah. yeah, can you explain what a life history is and, and how it yeah. can be, um, according to papers that you've written, slow or fast? Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, life history is all about um, survival and reproduction. This, what is your survival rate? What is your probability of surviving as a juvenile, for example, surviving till adulthood? When you're an adult, what is your reproduction? How many offspring do you produce? Do you only produce once or do you produce many times? So that's basically what life history is about. And then the speed means that if you look at across many animal species, many plant species, and you look at their sort of average survival rate and average reproduction rates, you can plot them along an axis from slow to fast life histories. And slow is more or less generalized or categorized as having high survival rates, but very low reproduction. So think of elephants, for example. Elephants have very slow life history rates. They, they take a long time to get to adulthood. They don't produce many young, but they survive. their survival rates are really high. Yeah. And the opposite end, so on the fast end, you have to think of rabbits. Rabbits have very low survival rates, but they reproduce like mad. Yeah. So these, yeah, you could, you could uh, so yeah, and, and there's species in the middle. Mm-hmm. And some species don't fit exactly on this axis of life history. Right. So is it, is it like a dichotomy? Like do you have to have slow, and fa- slow or fast, or do you also have terms for the ones like in between? Spectrum. No, it's just, yeah, definitely it's a spectrum. Okay. So it's it's definitely not a dichotomy. There's also species in the middle and recent, so recent work from the last few years uh, has identified a second axis. It has oh, right. to do with reproduction mode, I think, if I remember correctly. So do you produce once or many times? Hmm. Yeah. And does this, um, does size have anything to do as well? I, I guess it's maybe one of the factors, but... Like a um, rough relationship with life history. Yeah, it does. Size, I mean, size obviously affects, uh, for example, for females, your it can affect the reproduction. Rate, yeah, yeah, also your survival. Um, size may be related to your resource budget. You know, do you have enough mm-hmm. reserves, for example? Uh, but size itself doesn't end up on this um, uh, on this axis. Uh, and that, yeah, that has to do with, so life history theory, there's a theory behind this. And um, it focuses it focuses on survival, reproduction. It doesn't. There's no uh, clear mechanistic role for body size in it. Who do you know? Like, so, kind of uh, roughly when and how kind of life history uh, theory was developed? Like, was it because if it doesn't have that by that mechanistic <laughs> underpinning, I wonder if it was if it was made by someone who maybe wasn't entirely like a biologist and more in another field. 
Oh, okay. No, they were definitely biologists. Um, I guess it just depends on what approach you take. So if you go way back in biology, for example, there's been assumptions that all individuals do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I'm going back decades. Um, but at some point, that assumption uh, that was let go of because we know that not all, individ- all individuals within one animal population are the same. So they differ in these survival rates and in these reproduction rates. And then the question is, you know, what, yeah, what happens with this variation? Mm-hmm. And that's also where life history theory comes in. But they've, uh, in the beginning, it's focused much on quantities, for example, like generation time. You know, what's the time, for example, when individuals reproduce? And when do these offspring reproduce? How much time is in between these two moments? So it's, it's been very much focused on these more or less population level quantities. So you calculate them based on what a group of individuals is doing. And I think in that sense, yeah, there hasn't been uh, much of a, a mechanistic um, individual level approach to it. Um, for example, one theory that I uh, work with as well, which is called the dynamic energy budget theory. So that really focuses on how does an individual grow? What is its growth curve? And how does it depend on how much food it ingests? I, I, just, I just had a thought what, with relation to this spectrum of life history, you know, uh, with different animals. I wonder how you define humans in terms of this. So like what uh, life history traits do humans have? With relate with relation to you know other animals yeah. on the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, humans. I mean, different populations of humans show different life history traits. And so, I would say in the Western world, obviously, we have uh, very high survival rates now, low reproduction rates. Yeah, I mean, we're barely going above replacement rate. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and in other parts of the world, reproduction rate it's it's quite the opposite way. So, reproduction rates are quite high, but survival rates are low. Mm-hmm. Okay, so within within a species, there can be completely different life history yes. feeds. That is that an example of how plastic uh, yes. a particular species can be. Yes, I mean species differ in their plasticity, in the the range in which they can be plastic. But there's definitely different different responses within the same species. If you, uh, for example, go back to the uh, life history axis from slow all the way to fast, uh, that's often based on species level information. So you you don't take all this all these variation between different populations into account. So in your research, how do you um, account for this? Because there might be a um, particular species at a particular place that looks like it has a very fast life history, but it might just be the particular conditions, whereas in other conditions, yeah. it'll, be, it'll have a, lot, a much slower life history. You know? Yeah, well, I've done uh, work in the lab um, with a species of mite, so M-I-T-E, yeah. the tiny, tiny creatures. They're related to ticks that people may be more familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> and I work with a species of mites that's related to dust mites that a lot of people are allergic to. And the species I work with are called bulb mites. Uh, they uh, they feed off the bulbs of plants. So in Holland, uh, where I live, they, um, they're a pest, for example, uh, for flower bulbs, for the tulips. Because they eat away the ball. Anyway, they're, they're great creatures to have in the lab. They're very plastic in uh, in their survival and their reproduction rate. So, uh, I mean, I've studied in the lab how their life histories vary over in between different environments. So, if this, if they're in a really good food environment, for example, loads of food, high quality food, they grow incredibly fast. They they grow from uh, from egg to adult in nine days. And then oh, wow. a female, can, yeah, it's really quick. And a female can lay a thousand eggs 
so they're definitely on the past end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There definitely sounds like a pest to, to me. Yes, you can see why they're a pest, yeah. But then again, if you put them on an incredibly poor food source, so filter pa- I've given them filter paper, there's hardly any nutrition in filter paper. And then they take ages to mature. They can take months to actually get to adulthood. And even if they do, because there's a high uh, mortality rate. But if they do, they only lay about five eggs. So they're incredibly plastic wow. in how wow. they deal with environmental circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a, a huge variability. Um, huge, yeah. In your research, you focus on this, but in opposition, almost it seems to what you call big data research. Um, yeah. You say that that maybe not opposition is maybe not the right word. Maybe in addition to uh, big data research, yeah. it seems. So, can you explain to us a little bit why um, what is big data research and why uh, something like studying the mechanistic underpinnings of biological yeah. variations, as you call it? Uh, might yeah. be a better way to, to look at things. Yeah. Well, there, there's obviously lots of different types of big data research in medicine and biology. Um, but in my field, so population biology, there's been this recent movement uh, okay. to collect lots and lots of data on uh, animal and plant populations. And the data then concerns uh, what are the traits of these plants and animals. So how big do they get? How many offspring do they produce? Uh, What are their survival rates? And these data are being collected uh, in big databases, uh, which are then available to analyze. So they can be very valuable because you can find these life history patterns, for example. So you can rank the populations and species along axes, for example. You can see how much variation does that explain in their life history. Um, But there's also a movement that these big databases are then used um, to predict what will happen if uh, the environment changes. So under climate change, for example, or yeah, under env- any environmental change. And I think th- these big data projects can still be very useful. But my question is, what if these changes are new? So they're, they're unrelated to the conditions under which you measured your survival and reproduction. Right. What if they're evolutionary traits in a sense, I guess? Yeah, well, what, yeah. How, can, can you be sure that they show the same response under novel conditions? That's basically my question. Yeah. Okay. And I think, yeah, and, and I don't know if you, yeah, if you can extrapolate, basically. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like something we've talked about on the podcast a little bit before is this, this kind of need for uh, scientific research to be maybe more localized and more specific, more... Uh, contextual to a specific mm. place time uh, and kind of context uh, we've had we've had other people on the podcast tell us that uh, in their opinion some research was way too broad or trying to yeah. extrapolate too much compared to the place they were studying things in um, and, and it sounds reasonable to me i mean i, I don't understand uh, why anyone would have any opposition to this sounds like just a, <laughs> a better way to do science yeah, a better way. I mean, there are different ways of doing science. And obviously it all starts, I mean, if you ask me, it all starts with the question that you have and what do you need to answer your question properly? Mm-hmm. And maybe in some cases, these big databases can give you an answer. My worry is if you want to use this approach to predict what will happen under new circumstances, yeah, then I'm a bit worried because you you don't know the mechanisms. You don't know why mm-hmm. uh, animals or plants show these survival and reproduction rate under certain circumstances 
So you don't know anything, for example, about trade-offs because individuals, they, uh, they have a limited amount of resources available. They can only spend it once. So mm -hmm. if you spend it on growth, there's less to spend on reproduction, for example. Yeah. And how, how would that affect all these decisions? Yeah. Um, I want, so like, is this more than an issue of just accuracy? Is that, is it, is it, you know, can you just kind of get incorrect results from this uh, big data approach? Yeah, you could. Um, and as far as I'm aware, there haven't been any tests to actually test this. Yeah. Um, what I have done is I've done um, similar analysis. So you can compare. So I've done analysis where you do put in a mechanism. So you do put in a trade-off. So you, mm -hmm. you give individuals a trade-off. This is one choice you can make. Uh, if you spend your energy once, you cannot do this again. And if I do similar analysis on these uh, on these traits, I get different responses than where you don't incorporate these trade-offs. And for me, it raises the question: Okay, what what do we do with this result? Yeah. You know, what does this mean? <laughs> and yeah, maybe it's not so much about a question about who's right, but which one will give the most accurate response on the novel conditions? Mm. Yeah, and um, I want to get into the your research on so this very much related, but your research on uh, beach hoppers, uh, yeah. which I'm gonna try not butcher the name orchestia gamarellus <laughs> and yes. the uh, the reef manta ray mobula alfredi um, yeah. <laughs> uh, can you tell that i didn't do latin in school <laughs> um but yeah no these, these are i i found it really interesting um we'd write a little bit about it and how so as i understood it it seems like uh beach hoppers have a um have a fast life history right and the yeah. reef manta rays have a slow life history yeah um, and that beach hoppers are very sensitive it seems to to climate change and to, to environmental change especially in, in terms of yeah. food conditions yes yeah that's true um yeah so this is work that i did with uh, Matti berg from the free university of amsterdam there's two universities in amsterdam mm. um yeah, and uh, we looked at yeah these so these two life histories of the beach and the reef manta ray and see you know if environments change for example if the frequency of good environment conditions changes over time how does that affect the the population growth rate of these two species mm -hmm. and it turned out that I mean this was only for two species that our findings were basically opposite to those based on these uh, big data sets. Um, yeah, I mean, we only had two species. The big data sets, they have hundreds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it was only sort of a first test. In a sense. Yeah, and, and it's, you said that um, beach hoppers respond strongly to how often food conditions are favorable, yeah. whereas manta yeah. rays respond strongly to how predictable those food conditions are. What does this mean in, 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 kind of in practical terms? In, in term of their life story let's say yeah okay yeah so yeah two things like you said the predictability focuses on uh, for example the weather if today it's very sunny if predictability is very high then tomorrow it will also be very sunny so they'll be very related um there could also be in the opposite way they can also be related in the sense that today is sunny tomorrow rain then sunny then rain <laughs> okay. so there's still a predictability but it's like a ping pong effect and you can also have complete unpredictability. So there's completely no relationship between what happens today and tomorrow. And it appears from our analysis that these uh, reef manta rays are more sensitive, like you said, to this predictability. 
mm. in environmental conditions. Yeah. I had a question. Um, because you said earlier that some organisms don't fit satisfyingly on this kind of spectrum of life history. So you know, you you said like a fast life history is associated with traits such as uh, high reproduction and was it a short shorter lifespan? Yeah, so yeah, that's right. It's also uh, often a shorter lifespan. Yeah. So have you found or come across any unusual organisms which? you know, as you said, don't fit really well on the spectrum. So, for example, a low reproduction rate, but a low lifespan as well. That's kind of unsustainable as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, it's a very interesting question. Um, so I did uh, some work with uh, two students for the, over the last uh, few months, Marta Flotas and uh, Kim Mestas. Um, and we looked at the life history strategies of uh, Again, more more rays, more <laughs> giant rays, yeah. uh, but mm -hmm. also sharks, reef sharks, and sea turtles. And particularly sea turtles, they have this interesting life history trait combination of having uh, high survival, uh, no, sorry, long longevity, that's what I've said. So they live for a very long time, they can live up to 100 years old. Uh, but they also have high reproduction rates, yeah. But yeah, basically, you would have, if you, if you take the example of the elephant from earlier, you would have an elephant. Who would have hundreds of offspring? Yeah, which sounds ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's basically what these sea turtles uh, have. So they're quite unusual in that sense. And it turned out that some of the reef sharks, like I don't know if you've heard of tiger sharks, um, they have a similar life history. So they also uh, produce uh, many offspring. But the thing is, these offspring they have a very high mortality rates. Yeah. So, and that's why these populations don't explode like my mite populations in the lab that really explode in numbers. But um, that's why these sea turtle populations and the tiger sharks uh, don't explode in high numbers. And we, um, we also found that the way in which these um, sea turtles and these sharks respond to, at least in our simulations, I mean, these are, all, these are not field studies, these are just simulations, um, computer simulations the way their population growth responds to changes in the environment, again, doesn't fit what has been found by these uh, big data approaches. But it could very well yeah. be true because of their unusual life histories. And for me, this raises the question, okay, if how many unusual life histories do we have, actually? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, these are all open questions. But I think, um, I mean, they're, they're important to keep, at least in your mind, when you see these general patterns, you should always have the question of, okay, but does that apply to all species or how many, a fraction? What about all the unusual species? Yeah. I don't know if this is going beyond the general area of research, but I, w would it be correct to say that a faster life history means that the organism evolves quicker? Yes, yeah, that's a very good inference. And that also has to do with oh. generation time that we talked about earlier. So the time that your offspring can reproduce. So if your generation time is very short, like uh, my mites in the lab with nine days, you can have 10 generations in uh, 90, so in three months. Hmm. So if there's any sort of um, selection pressure on these mites, they can, in theory, they can respond very quickly because they have hmm. this very fast generation time. Whereas uh, the reef manta rays, I mean, and the, the sharks and the turtles, they have a very slow generation time. So it will take much longer to respond to any changes in conditions. And I mean, this is a worry because changes, especially now, changes in the environment are very fast. 
so it raises the question can how do how do animals and plants respond to these fast changes that brings me to to a question that i had this whole time when i was when i was reading your stuff is the implications of this in terms of climate change and in terms of environmental environmental change we i think the biggest thing that i hear from people who aren't in the science or aren't in these kind of fields is that is this idea that that change is a constant and that change is, is just you know something that happens naturally um, not just in terms of like climate change but also in mm-hmm. terms of changes yeah. in in sort of sea levels or changes in in co2 yes. you know there's this general idea that it's a normal yeah. thing but i think then the biggest issue i've learned at least from experts yeah. and stuff is that it's not the change itself it's the speed and the, the rate of change right um so so yeah. this like this is quite scary then if if you're saying that some populations are are really deeply affected by by rates of change or, or changes uh what does this mean i mean i i know this isn't maybe exactly your field but but what does this yeah. mean for those species in the long run yeah not many good things i think but yeah i mean yeah, to to come back to your first point i mean it, it's very true there's always been changes in the environment and they've been exceptionally great changes in the environment i mean uh, like levels of oxygen just name something if we go back millions of years um meteorite impacts uh, that we know of from the dinosaurs yes so there have been very major impacts i think what what is uh, what is now perhaps on people's minds is um the role that we as humans play in these changes and that is obviously very unique to this situation now it's what is our contribution to the changes in the environment. And we obviously, we have a big contribution to what's happening in the environment. Uh, so perhaps because of our contribution, environments are changing even faster and faster. And indeed, not all, I mean, populations can respond in different ways, right? They, so they can, they can be, maybe they're plastic, so they have flexibility in how they can deal with new changes in the environment. Uh, they can adapt, so that's the evolutionary response, which takes time. Uh, or you can move. I mean, you can move. You can migrate, for example, to a different place that better suits the conditions that you need. Um, but there can be problems. I mean, maybe there are barriers, so you cannot move, in which case the populations may go extinct. And uh, yeah, I mean, this. I'm sure this is happening uh, all over the place. Yeah, this, this reminds me of a paper that we'd read. Uh, kind of, I'd, I'd been reading a little bit in, in preparation for for another talk uh, on yeah. coral on coral reefs and how yeah. they had. Uh, and I, I find this to be a good example for people because when I try and explain this to kind of family or friends, because mm. corals survived the early Triassic period, like 250 million years ago, uh, when CO2 was almost five times as high as today, right? But then, but then apparently they already they had different types like they didn't have a calcified skeleton but apparently just the, that rate of change from then to today has been slow enough for them to yeah to the change was like now apparently the you know the ipcc is saying that by 2100 we might yeah. if we go above two degrees we'll lose 99 percent of coral reefs to coral yeah. bleaching yeah so this is it's crazy to think that something could have changed from five times as high to today in that amount of time in millions and millions of years could adapt f- that fast in like a hundred years 200 years yeah <laughs> yeah 
but yeah, but yeah, like you say, in corals, particularly the change in temperature, that's that's devastating, and not just for corals. Uh, there's something called um, ocean. What is it? Uh, dead, like the dead zones. Oh, there's no oh, there's no oxygen. Um, so really? there's no oxygen in certain areas of the ocean. Yeah, oh. and um, I don't know off the top of my head exactly where, but these these areas are increasing. So the the, the size is getting bigger and bigger. And yeah, I've basically, organisms. So, yeah. So, just, yeah, just, just animals just, so to say, suffocate in those areas. Yes. Yeah, you can't live there. No, there's no food, nothing, no oxygen, you die. Oh. Yeah. I, I did hear that coral reefs can drown, apparently, as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's the other thing. Sea level rise, I suppose that's, yeah. The, yeah it's crazy it to think of a, of a sea life drowning. It's, it's just a bit. Yeah. <laughs> How does it drown? Is it the pressure? I didn't exactly understand how. Um, so just I just read something about how rising sea levels, like uh, right. Isabel says, that we can drown coral reefs. But we're we're getting a little bit uh, off yeah. topic, probably. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, uh, but um... I've been asking a lot of questions that might be a bit out there, and this one's even further out there. Um, so Go on. just I suppose <laughs> I suppose. Um, humans can you know in very simple terms rely on um each other and technology to be very plastic in uh, hard conditions yeah. um oh no that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not a good for, not a good first response <laughs> can, can i jump in immediately <laughs> yes yes please <laughs> well i think you know, we also rely on what is uh, sometimes referred to as ecosystem services. And, yes. <laughs> and I think that's something that people really should be aware of. And we rely on nature in many different ways. Um, we rely on nature just to name simple examples like medicine. Um, they're first found in nature and then they're made, like chemical equivalents are made in a lab. But we get a lot from nature. Uh, mental well-being, there's loads of studies that the greener areas are. You know, the better people feel. So it's not just technology in which phase we are plastic. I mean, we yeah. need we need nature and we need biodiversity. And yeah, this is just really important. And that's why we should all be very worried now with all these changes going on. You know, how do we uh, we have to we have to deal with this? We have to perhaps change our behavior. And if you ask me personally, I think this whole COVID nineteen crisis. I mean, it's terrible. But maybe we can take some positives out of this because we travel less. Um, it's it's better for the environment. Maybe now is the moment also to make decisions on how when we come out of this crisis, how do how can we change our behavior? How can we do this? Yeah. So yeah, I think yeah. it's definitely food for thought. Yeah. Yeah. In a in a strange way, it was a um, it was a wake up call. Yeah, it's definitely a, a wake-up call. That's indeed what also the the EU refers to it. If you go, oh to, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a wake-up call. Yeah, there's, and there's all these like places where like um, animals not seen for many years returning to like yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the beginning, you saw all these uh, all these films on Twitter of uh, animals moving into towns. I mean, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great. I think. Uh, so maybe... I think also for sorry. No, 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 no. Go for. Of course, go for it. Yeah, I was going to say also for academia, I think, because, you know, and uh, there's yeah. an ongoing discussion about should, shouldn't we travel less? We're the ones saying, you know, be careful yeah. with the environment <laughs> and all the while we'll travel two, three times a year to different countries. Yeah. But again, I think now is the moment, okay, maybe we don't need to travel that much. 
Yeah, this was a, a big discussion at our our old university at Lancaster because we, mm. when we did like a carbon budget analysis, it turned out that yeah, yeah, yeah travel was a massive part, yeah. but not not just travel. I think I think uh, traveling for conferences wasn't really the biggest thing. It was more, at least okay. for Lancaster Uni specifically. Yeah. And you know, I don't want, we don't want to get sued for, for misinformation on this, but, <laughs> but uh, I, as I remember, a large portion of their CO2 emissions were due to their campuses in other countries oh. and their staff oh. basically going from Lancaster or from wherever they are to oh. those campuses. Okay. Um, so it wasn't even for conferences. It was just for <laughs> inter-campuses activities. Wow, but that's... Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah, something that you can easily tackle now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess the human plasticity question might not be completely applicable. Yeah. Maybe we should change the name to the podcast to uh, this may be a weird question, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about <laughs> your, your echo evolutionary dynamics yeah. uh, research. <clears throat> so yeah. this is, maybe can you, Give us an introduction to this term because it's a, it's quite a big yes. big word. Yeah, evolutionary dynamics. It's um, yeah, it, it's it's been around for uh, many decades, uh, but only fairly recently has it sort of really become a field of its own. And what people do of evolutionary dynamics, what it's about is if you uh, study, for example, populations of communities of animals and plants. And you look at how their sizes fluctuate and the characteristics of these individuals that are in these populations and communities. And you, uh, you can find that whatever what drives these changes can both be an e ecology. So it can be changes in the number of individuals and in population size. That's typical of uh, the field of ecology. Um, but at the same time, you can also have changes in, for example, the average traits of these individuals. For example, if you, um, if you go back to the elephants, so they have these tasks, uh, tasks yeah, <laughs> uh, the average size can change over time. Just to name something. And these, these changes can happen at the same time. And this is what people of eco-evolutionary dynamics are really interested in. So what is the interaction between these ecological drivers and evolutionary drivers? How does the interaction work? And also very interestingly, how do feedbacks work? Because they can feed back on each other. So you can have a change in population size, for example, which can then impact traits of individuals, which can then, and if it, if it impacts, and then we bring in life history, if it impacts survival and reproduction rates of individuals, it will directly impact again population size. So you get this feedback loop going. Uh, this might be a bit pessimistic. <laughs> it, yeah. It's a little bit scary, kind of how much um, how much data there is in this, yeah. in terms yeah. of like purely studying all these feedback, all these feedbacks, yeah. and all the 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 factors that come into this. Does it not get as a scientist? Do you not get a little bit kind of overwhelmed by by the idea that there's so many different ways in which the factors not only yeah. exist but interact? Yes, no, definitely. But my drive is, um, well, to put it in very practical terms, so I have these mites in the lab, I have populations of mites, I follow them over time, so I monitor their size, the growth rates, what the, all the individual mites look like, how big are they, how many offspring do they produce. And I'm particularly interested in, now, what if I change something in their environment, so I change an ecolo ecological selection on these populations, what will happen? And 
it's very difficult to predict what will happen to these populations. So here is the problem. So how do I accurately predict the outcome of this selection pressure? And for that, you, you, yeah, you need to know the, how these feedbacks work, because then that would be the only way to, um, to predict what will happen to these populations. And if, yeah, if, you, if you understand that, then you can, I think you can make the step of predicting what will happen to, uh, to populations under new circumstances. And that's eventually, I think, where we want to go to, if you want to put this in a broader context of how populations respond to environmental change. Uh, I don't know if you studied this specifically, um, but from your from your general research, if you have a kind of I don't know insight or rough idea of um, kind of predicting the future of m marine life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Big question. Aye aye aye. Future of marine life. Yeah. Just pull out some tarot cards. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, life itself is very resilient. So if we're going to generalize, we'll generalize <laughs> in a great extent. So life itself has been around for billions of years. So marine life will, if you ask me, continue to exist as long as there are oceans. Um, but particularly the way situations are now, um, no, I think... I. I we think this has to be done. For example, uh, these reef manta rays, they are hunted uh, by, yeah, they're, they're fished. And it, I mean, these reef manta rays are particularly sensitive if adults are taking out of the population because then you, you don't have any reproduction anymore. So if you, and they, these fisheries are particularly targeting the adults. So you take them out, yeah, populations will decline. They, they won't exist anymore in several years' time. Um, yeah, so. And um, then we, we already discussed the, the coral reefs. And with coral reefs, they have such um, a crucial role in ecosystems. I mean, they're like at the basis of it all. So if they disappear, the whole local ecosystem will disappear. So you have all these knock-on effects on the species within communities, the whole communities will disappear. Um, I mean, this sounds obviously very negative, but yeah, there, there are ways. I mean, they're still there. There are ways of uh, protecting these species but it's a very complicated problem because we're I mean we're here we're sitting now in Europe but we're talking about problems you know on the other side of the globe and there's usually there's all sorts of social problems involved because people need to eat mm -hmm. yeah. so they're, they're very complicated problems uh, to solve like the I mean like the whole bushmeat issue and COVID-19 I mean it's such a complex problem to solve I, I, I saw that you've done a lot of uh, work as well on on the is it s s sexual dimorphism I, yeah 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 it's um a dimorphism within one sex so in this within males yeah right for for zebra finch uh birds especially or sorry was that oh song? yeah I, that, I, that's a long time ago yeah, the yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was thinking oh, yeah, did, yeah, I, did yeah. i get the same did i get the right one <laughs> i'm not sure um no, no i studied the uh, yeah, yeah? I, I guess I just sorry. Go, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> now the dimorphisms I study in the mites. Um, mm -hmm. So the mites, it's it's fascinating stuff. These males, mm -hmm. they come in two types and they're very discreet. So you guys are not biologists, but if I would show you the two types, mm -hmm. next mm -hmm. time I show you, you would be able to tell which one's which. Um, and one, yeah, and one male type, they're fighters. We call them fighters. So they have 
um, mites, they have eight pairs of legs. And these fighter mites, they have one pair of legs. They're incredibly thick and muscular. And they have like a sharp end. And they can use them like daggers. So what they can do is they grab another mite and puncture the skin. And that's it then. Other mites kill you. Oh well, okay. Yeah, so <laughs> gruesome stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nature is nature is pretty mental sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and so then uh, we have we have this other type of male that doesn't have these fighter legs, so they they can't defend themselves. They can't kill other mites. So big question: Why do we have these two types always? Yeah. And I mean always <laughs> in the same population. Hmm. And this is not a, a question just for mites. I mean, you see this phenomenon across the board. You see it uh, in lots of insect species, fish. Uh, you sometimes see three types. So then you have a fighter type, a non-fighter, and a female mimic. So then the third type is a male that looks like a female. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, oh. so the, what they do is they, they pretend to be a female, and competitor males, they don't notice. So they just they just ignore this pretend female, and okay. the pretend female can then mate with the real female. Yeah. That's interesting. So these yeah. these fighters don't like protect the colony or something. They fight their own species. That's 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 bizarre. <laughs> yeah, they um, it's well the so the they have hypotheses that explain this. Uh, one of them is that it's all to do with reproduction. So again, it goes back to the life history, focusing on reproduction, and it's about males. Yeah, maximizing their mating chances. So by killing off all your competitors, you're the one <laughs> that can mate the most. <laughs> but then the non-fighters still exist, so they haven't yes. been like bred out. No, they're not. They um, and one explanation is that they are like sneaker mills. So they <laughs> perhaps they don't have enough resources to develop these thick fighter legs. And the only thing left to do is to sneak males. They call it the best of a bad job. Yeah, so you can still perhaps sneak a mating here and there. So you have some reproduction. <laughs> okay. So do they develop yeah. into fighters or sneakers or are they born fighters or sneakers? No, it's they develop. So they're not okay, born. Right. It, okay. Yeah, it's, some species there are, but the majority of species where you see this phenomenon, it happens during development. So as a juvenile, Although somewhere during development, there's this critical period where, depending on some sort of cue, for example, their own condition, if they're in good condition, then they will develop these fighter legs. And if not, they won't. Mm -hmm. yeah. do, do you think that, um, is, is there like any, I, I'm not sure if you can really confirm this or not, but is there any kind of um, amount of like, consciousness is something I've, I've i've always wondered in in these types of of creatures in the way that they behave towards things like mating you know do you think that they <laughs> i'm not asking you if, if they're completely <laughs> conscious creatures but like do you think there's any any sense of them knowing kind of what they're doing when they're killing off their competitors to mate or is it more just what i mean is more is it more a, a biological like uh what do you call it a um instinctive an impulse an instinct yeah Okay, well, the behavior itself, um, the assumption is that it, it's shaped by natural selection over time. So it's shaped to such an extent that it will optimize the fitness of these individuals. Um, the whole question of whether it's conscious or not, I mean, that's obviously a very difficult one. I mean, you could even argue, are we as humans 
completely conscious of everything yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah, you can sure. take that question very far um i think um i don't know if it's if it will help you understand why we see these dimorphisms by asking about consciousness so yeah. it's i think it's more about what what are the costs and benefits of these different behaviors and if we understand the costs and benefits perhaps we can understand how selection has shaped the optimal solution to particular trade-offs that exist yeah. I, I have a, a more like a practical i guess question yeah. is uh, how do you how do you carry out this research in general um what is like a a day in the life of Isabel look like <laughs> yeah. in terms of uh, in 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 terms of like the actual research that you you do maybe not maybe not the uh, the writing bit because no. unfortunately we all know what the writing process is like yes. <laughs> <It's horrendous. laughs> yeah um well um yeah it's so, it's, it's huge. that's really varied over time so when I was a postdoc um so that's yeah <laughs> over six, seven years ago. Um, I was supposed to look at um, Imperial College in Oxford and I worked in the lab a lot. So that I was doing work on the mites. I was focusing on this question, you know, why do we have these two types? And what does it mean for the dynamics of populations? And that involved a lot of time sitting behind a microscope because these are very small creatures. I mean, the females, they're the biggest, but they only get up to one millimeter big. <laughs> So you really have to do microscope work, uh, which involves uh, counting, lots of counting with the hand counter, counting the mites, uh, measuring them. So we use, uh, we have cameras on top of these uh, microscopes and we can, we can film them, we can take photos. And then this particular software, you can measure the size on these photos. So you can measure all the individuals. Wait, sorry, when, when, sorry to cut you off. When, yeah. when you say head count, do you mean that? you have to manually count the amount of miniature yeah. mites there. That's crazy. Do you, do you guys not have, <laughs> are there no programs that can kind of, yeah. some form of AI? Like, yeah, they, they do exist. Um, the problem with the mites is we don't get a lot of contrast between the mites and the background. Right. Okay. Uh, because they eat the background. <laughs> <laughs> what? Mites eat the background? Well, they eat, they eat everything. Now they... <laughs> So these mites are in little tubes, they're two and a half centimeters high, like uh, one and a half centimeters wide, very small tubes, but they fit populations of hundreds of individuals. Oh. Yeah, and in this tube, there is something that's called plaster of Paris, that's what kids play with as well, and we give that a color, black, because the mites are white. But the thing is, when they start eating, they also eat the black stuff. <laughs> so, and you can see that digestive system, so you have basically a, a white-ish mites with black stuff against black but yeah it's, it's oh, right. are they are they kind of a little bit transparent uh, right yeah you said, you, said you can see much. through you can see you the... can see their digestive system yeah right, you, okay. you, in females you can see the eggs inside oh that's pretty yeah neat. yeah okay. so it's a lot of it's a lot of manual work it's a lot of manual work yeah yeah, hmm. yeah it, it takes the, the most time is uh, spent on actually measuring the sizes of these mites because the counting actually goes quite quickly Mm -hmm. um, but measuring the size stick for, that takes hours and hours and that is the big limitation actually for doing my work so you need a lot of manpower if you want to do a huge experiment you need mm -hmm. many people yeah. and in terms of things like the the manta ray um stuff do you I, I guess you guys maybe don't work with manta rays in 
no we don't we don't have them in the lab no yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you you take an old trip to well actually i'm not really sure exactly i don't want to say yeah. anything stupid i don't know where matters <laughs> live exactly no i use data of uh, populations of the coast of mozambique and of okay. the coast of some islands near japan i haven't been there it was actually this whole project started with a student who walked into my office uh, it's called uh, isabella also isabel from the oude <laughs> She walked into my office, she said, I have this great project organized for my master's project in Mozambique. I will go and uh, look at manta rays, I will measure them, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but she was looking for a supervisor. So I thought, oh, that's great. Maybe we can do some you know, computer simulations with the data that you bring back. And that's how all of this started. So it started off with uh, a student project. Yeah. And then, uh, and then it turned out because we, we, so she, she went there. She had loads of fun, collected loads of data, <laughs> and um, and we did, we uh, created a simple population model. And it turned out that nobody else, there wasn't anything out there on the population dynamics of race. It was very limited, and uh, let alone that people had looked at different life history strategies that hadn't yeah. been done. So that was a big surprise, actually. So there, there's still a lot to do in terms of. Yeah. Uh, in terms of these types of, of scientific endeavors. Yeah. I have, I have like a, a final question that kind of touches a little bit on what Jamie had asked before about um, inf like inferring what will happen in the future. Uh, as someone who kind of studies this, I'm not, I'm not asking for maybe a specific, a specific forecast, but more just uh, do you, do you worry? Uh, I, I wonder if the, the speed of, of change compared to mm. what you see in your own research with life history yeah. And, and stuff does that kind of scare you a little bit or do you feel like there is enough room in there to for them to to change fast enough and i i wonder like what's your emotional response i guess to, yeah. to this stuff well it's all uh, a lot of things are just quite depressing if you read all the fisheries literature um yeah like the coral reef the tropical zones it's um it's, and it's, yeah, some other, I have other students that I supervised and they went to um, ecotourism projects and you think, oh, ecotourism, that's great, great initiative. And this was a particular project on sea turtles. But what they did is what well, they killed all the sharks in the area so tourists could look at tur sea turtles. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, that's what I said, yeah. <laughs> um, so there are lots of problems. And, and, but I think, again, this comes down to local communities the the people that live in these locations and they they need to earn their living and they yeah and i think that's where it, and i think that because that problem is so complicated mm -hmm. yeah that does uh, yeah that does make you sad it's like how on earth can we solve all these questions i mean we shouldn't lose hope obviously and for me from a from a scientific point of view what i struggle with is okay if we're asked to create predictions I find I find that a difficult question because what if we're wrong? You know, I think perhaps <laughs> yeah, <me. laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I guess when you do make a prediction, you take on some form of responsibility. Yes, yeah, and uh, so I'm now working with a PC student, Kim Eustache, and um, on reef sharks in French Polynesia, and we're really trying to get to grips on of the population dynamics of these sharks to create these predictions. So we, you know, we do try, and uh, these predictions are just are meant for the local communities and the local fisheries so they know how to best how to how, they, how to still continue fishing but in a more sustainable manner right so so it is this kind of form of more localized yeah. uh, research yeah. and science yeah. that's interesting we we'd been talking to um david tyfield uh, a couple months ago i think now 
who's a, a researcher and he he told us about really like what you're talking about now which is the what he calls phrenesis like a sort of learned wisdom which is mm -hmm. like to his view of making science fit the more contextual kind yeah. of um the, the the more localized context and, and i think this sounds like something we should be doing but mm -hmm. when we talk to some other scientists they were telling us that that's not really the way at least they see the the fields going especially in terms of yeah. climate change like uh We've been told that in hydrology, for example, there's still these really big, big models being produced. Um, I don't know if you see this in, in population biology, but, but in hydrology, we've been told that there are so, so many predictions being made with so little data um, and data yeah. that sometimes has uncertainty levels that are just yeah. off the charts. Um, yeah. do, do you think we kind of see this a little bit in in population biology like when i don't know if you've read the ipcc reports and, and maybe those bits of it i've glimpsed it um i think um if you talk on a population level so population biology data they usually to actually have a model to describe a population you need quite a lot of data if you take well there's different approaches you can you can take a pure theoretical ecology approach and sort of step away from actually parameterizing a model to look at the general patterns. And this can be helpful to create hypotheses. Or you can uh, really look at a population and you really want to model that particular population. And then that already requires a lot of data inputs. Do you, do you think you said that you were scared about, yeah. Um, yeah. about predictions? Do you think yeah. there are too many maybe predictions being made without enough facts yeah as, as my main worry we have to have predictions yeah my my main worry is is what are these predictions based on is there some sort of mechanistic underpinning i think that's my main worry and if there isn't if it's a pure phenomenological description of what has been going on in the past then i am worried about does that say anything about future novel circumstances mm -hmm. i think that's my main worry yeah mm -hmm. uh jamie do you have anything else you'd like to add or ask now I've already asked my weird questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. All right. Well, Dr. Isabel Smolikanga, thank you so much for, for joining us. And uh, we hope to, to see a bit more of your, your work in the future. This has definitely taught us a lot. Yeah. Um, I think, I think your, your general thing, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the, the general idea that you're putting forward of, of this mechanistic underpinning and, and really understanding better what we're yeah. basis of what we're studying yeah. i think resonates yeah. with a lot of people so thank you for that yeah no yeah um, thank you very much i really enjoyed this yeah been really interesting T time has just flown <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah thanks for listening for a question or comment you can find us on twitter at our human odyssey on facebook at the human odyssey or on instagram at the human odyssey podcast if you like the content you can always subscribe on patreon for as little as two euros a month and help us support the show Speaking of, big thanks to Nadia, Shadia, Pablo and Tommy, our Patrons of the Month.